Ani, welcome. Episode four of Communities of Wealth. Pew 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 pew. Round of applause. We made it to episode four, and we've got some new folks in the room. Hello, hello. So today, as always, me, Shanna Pelche, facilitating these conversations, and excited to be here. To my left, as always, for some reason, on my left, we have Nia, who's back with us. Heyo. Can't get rid of her. (laughs) And you're stuck with me. I gotta be here. Yeah, and some new folks. So, Quinn, if you'd like to introduce yourself. Yeah. Oh, miigwech. And uh, it's good to be here. Miigwech. Bonjour, Kanoia. I'm Ashtatongi with Nagabo. Ninago. I'm Quinn Dodem. Gnabjing Donjaba. So, my name is uh, Quinn Mwaski. I guess that's my, uh, my my GST name, some people say. So, <laughs> and uh, yeah, so I'm from First Nation. So, repping along the North Shore of Lake Huron, Robinson Huron Treaty Territory. So, it's good. I'm happy. It's uh, pretty exciting. And organization, who are you kind of coming here? Yeah, so repping? I'm here repping. So, actually, really interesting story. I guess uh, we'll get into it, but I am the chair of the steering committee for OIB. So, Really excited to get in this. Lots of stories to share and uh, looking forward to some really good conversations. And what about Nimki Collective? Yeah, that's right. So, oh, oh, wow. You forgot wait, all your jobs. Nah, no, <laughs> no. So, yeah, I guess uh, that's another one that I'm uh, very actively involved in as the project administrator for the Nimki Youth Collective and Lands-Based Language Cultural Revitalization is our thing. So, uh, I guess we'll get into it a bit more later and uh, I'm really excited to talk about, you know, some of our experiences and, uh, you know, to share a little bit about, uh, you know, what's been going on. And to our right, Jess. <laughs> Welcome. New voice, new voice. Ani Bojo Kinawea. My name is Jess Bolduck. I'm a member of the Batchawana First Nation with a lot of community ties to Garden River. I'm just up the road from Quinn yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, I'm here with you representing 4Hours Youth Movement and I'm their executive director and I'm also the co-chair of the Algoma Community Foundation, which is based here in Anishinaabe Aki uh, near Bawatin, which is my home. <laughs> Good to be with you all. Which is why you both are at this table. And if Thea, you'd like to maybe set us up as to what we'll be sort of talking about today. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, over the last few episodes, we've been going through quite a few different types of topics. Um, and one of them, you know, there's been this like undercurrent that's been happening through a lot of them. And that's around really navigating the granting world, you know, because OIP as itself is is a funder. Um, and it's... I feel like the outside world tends to see us just as a funder, but there's these things that we do in the background that you don't actually see and that we're constantly fundraising, that we don't have all the money in the world. Um, We're not guaranteed to be alive year after year. And so we're constantly in that space of, oh, of uh, doing and finding uh, funds to keep us alive. And uh, so what I wanted to kind of, talk about is, you know, we know some of the processes that OIP goes through in terms of how we operate and provide opportunities for youth to access small granting funds. There's a lot of things we do that is the same as the, you know, traditional quote unquote granting world. um, But there's a lot of things that we don't do because they suck and they're awful um, and they're harmful to, to youth. So for this conversation today, I just really wanted to kind of dive into some of the experiences that we have all each had in terms of trying to find granting dollars. You know, um, earlier today, Jess and I were talking and we realized that we were both in the middle of applying for the same grant. And and that happens a lot. Um, and even within that application, there's a lot of really problematic things that we're facing in terms of trying to 
mold ourselves into a box that it looks very clearly like it wasn't meant for us to fit in. And so I wanted to open up that conversation. And I hope that in some of this sort of um, introduction to this episode and this conversation, it helps to start to spark some things that maybe you both um, have recently experienced or even in the last few years of just trying to keep your organizations afloat. Um, you know, what are some of the things that you're doing that people don't know that you're doing that is actually harmful for yourself, <laughs> even though we don't, we don't, we don't put our youth that we serve in those positions, but little do they know that we're actually stretching ourselves very, very, very far um, and kind of hiding it. That's a, that's a quite the list we got going, but you know what? I think we've got a lot of experience in the room. Everybody here has, you know, lots to contribute and share. So I think it's going to go good. Yeah. And it, the, we've almost been working our way up a little bit. Like we started with like a grantee interview and then we went to like the youth advisors and now we're getting to like those of you who actually get the money to the young people like you are the ones who go and pull and it is going to be interesting to hear about the ways you almost do you have to sacrifice little things about like yourself or the things that you believe in in order to just get money in the through the door <laughs> or the ways that you refuse to participate in these systems and so I guess maybe we'll just circle back a bit to start with Quinn talking about your journey through you've like you went through that ladder started off as a grantee then a youth advisor or was it always a youth advisor you were in a grantee. Yeah, uh, youth advisor. Nimke Youth Collective got a grant though, but... Later on though. Yeah, later on, but definitely started like as a youth advisor. So kind of got to get in there and, and see what it was about, you know, the experience, you know, learn about the reporting, what the application looked like. So I uh, really got to, you know, meet a lot of the young people, the applications and like, you know, me too. What was, uh, you know, phil- philanthropy? You know, uh, no idea, right? So something as a young person kind of, you know, trying to get into the sector, trying to access funding dollars, it was like, whoa, very intimidating, real scary thing, right? But, um, and so I, I think that's the amazing thing is you get to see, you know, OIP do a lot of the work to make it more accessible. Um, and uh, we've seen a lot of really good work, definitely some challenges, but, you know, I think, uh you know, Thea, um, uh, we're real humble all the time, but it has done a lot of amazing work to really, you know, carve out that space in the sector. So, you know. And and what about like your role as, how was it for you to transition from a youth advisor to the steering committee chair? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, you know what? It was uh, definitely, you know, I was like, oh, I just, I really, it was hard because I, I really loved, you know, hearing the youth projects, you know, and just, you know, being inspired and being like, wow, there's some amazing work happening out there. And, you know, because at times you can feel just all bummed out or whatever. And, you know, and then you get to hear all these this amazing work and these ideas and the hopes and dreams of our young people and them them realizing it through their projects and doing the work in their community. It's so inspiring, right? So, uh, but I still see that as, you know, as I transitioned up and, you know, being a little bit more on, you know, a, a technical administrative, you know, end as well. So, um, you know, seeing some of the more barriers, some of the challenges as well. But, uh, you know, there's there's been a lot of times when, you know, um, learning as you're going as well, right? And then, you know, being like, hmm, you know, maybe that wasn't the best way to go about things, right? Or maybe, I, I, you know, so it, it's really interesting kind of in retrospect, I guess. That's, that's something I'm learning lots about. Well, and I think it's important that you're here part of that this conversation as well, because like, well, first of all, you've gone through many different roles here and now you are kind of experiencing my perspective of being, you know, uh, trying to lead this organization. And, you know, you go through some of those weeds that other people don't hear about. Um, and then at the same time, 
you also have this other organization where you're also continuously fundraising for. And now we're in the same boat, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. We're in the same boat of trying to find things. But there are so many barriers that are put out there. And um, I, there's, there's just been too many times where we have a conversation and we're both feeling the same way. We're both feeling as just as defeated in terms of like trying to apply or finding funds and, or realizing that, you know, we no longer uh, qualify for certain funds that we were expecting and things like that. And so. It was definitely hard. You know what I, I remember is like oftentimes like uncertainty. It was like, there's so much amazing work that's happening out there. But then like, do we have enough funds to, you know, send out the door and, and to really support these young people in their communities? And like that uncertainty was like just this feeling of like, uh, you know, really unease. And then it made me feel like, man, I, I don't even know how to explain it, right? There's just ways that, you know, I that experience is something that I really... Um, when I reflect back to it, I was like, it has to be different. You know, things have to change, right? Especially when we're doing great work and the, the young people are doing amazing work in their communities. And so, you know, why not, you know, it'd be a no-brainer to just support it, right? So um, I, I would say, you know, funding, access to funding, the uncertainty from year to year has been a challenge. You know, constantly fundraising, like just the work never stops, right? But, you know, it's the drive of wanting to support these young people, seeing the the amazing work that they're doing, you know, like that's why we're doing it. That's why we're all here, right? So what was one of the maybe biggest shifts that you felt going from a youth advisor where we actually don't see a lot of this behind the scenes stuff because Thea's like a little protective auntie to go to that next stage to actually start to navigate that? Yeah, that's a really good question. I think there's like lots to reflect on, right? So, um, you know, uh, the, the year to year, sometimes funding, you know, like not often you get multi, you know, some, sometimes you get multi-year funding, right? And so then you can plan, you know, you can like look ahead and say like, okay, two years, three years, you know, we, we have some cushion room, right? But then when you're doing the fundraising every single year and then you're seeing the stress that's happening and and really being concerned for, you know, Thea as, you know, the one who's, you know, really carrying a lot of the work is being like, you know, how, how why should she have to, you know, pull all that weight? You know, how are there ways that we can support Thea as she's doing this work? I think that was huge. Like it's the, almost like having to navigate the sector, like on the steering committee end. And I, I get to support her in different ways, but he is the one that's day to day has to do the ins and outs of everything. I can remember some of the conversations about, you know, some of the stress that, you know, from some of the meetings that were happening and, you know, some of the interactions that they had with some of the funders. So um, I think a lot of that, like you mentioned it earlier, Thea being, you know, this auntie taking in that role to like, you know, uh, and some of the youth advisors don't necessarily get to really um, see or experience um is, you know, me being like, you know, we really got to find ways to continue to support the, uh, and, and the work that we're doing here. So a lot of reflection. It's, it's, uh, and we're all learning too. I think, you know, I think that's something that, uh, you know, trying to find ways to, you know, make things more accessible, make things more, um, create more opportunities, I guess. So. Yeah. And just to start pulling in Jess, like, how did you, how are you and OIP, like, <laughs> How are these we related? Where are your relations? <laughs> <laughs> I don't even remember, to be honest. I mean, and I think that that's a testament to like relationship um, and the process of like building and maintaining relationships as Indigenous people. It's like we're family. I can't really remember when we became family, but we'll always be family. I think like the places 
that we came together like four hours and OIP um, were around this idea of kind of moving away from the competition that actually is like um, forced on us through um, granting or like access to money and resources and and instead sort of choosing collaboration and choosing to like hold one another up. Um, It's like we're doing this work to create a more healthier ecosystem for Indigenous young peoples to like live into the futures that they imagine possible. Um, And so like uh, the work that we really do is just like about, you know, I see see you and I want to help you. Um, and I know that CSE is me and wants to help me. And it's just really that mutual like care for one another as as relatives, but also the care for the young people that we work with. You know, practically we've done like events together. We've like, um, CIA is always like uh, open and OIP's always open to sort of coming to things that 4Rs is doing so that we can like build capacity together. Uh, because I think that's something that's really special about the work of OIP is um, like creating new newness within the context of colonialism uh, and then trying to like burst through that in so many different ways. And so it's it's uh, a lot about um, finding processes and approaches to grant making that work for our communities while also being under the constraints of, of like philanthropic dollars that are coming our way or like granting from the federal government or provincial governments or whatever. So um, yeah, so I think it that's that's uh, our relationship. Well, I think we also too just connected on the same um, garbage that we 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 have to go through. And so, you know, I, you guys mentioned me a lot, but at the same time, like we're all in leadership roles as young Indigenous folks, and we're all doing very similar things and experiencing the same types of 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 barriers. And so I say, like, you know, we we connect a lot on like you know complaining about the shit we got to go through, you know? <laughs> and like a lot of the times it's what we're talking about. And and it feels like sometimes when you're doing these things, you get siloed and you feel like you're alone. Um, but we're not. And this is where like we start to talk about and share all these things that we're going through just as a person for me that I call when I don't know what to do. And so we talk about it and figure out, well, what's the best solution moving forward? How do we tackle this or that? Um, But at the same time, like I know that she knows and I know that Quinn knows what it's like to go through some of these things when we're facing, you know, uh, we're, we're fighting over the same, (laughs) the same pools of funds or we're facing um, problematic questions and applications Mm-hmm. So let's like start to get into some of that stuff because I'm hearing like, well, get into the challenges that you experience, and then we'll sort of move into like some of your hopes for the sector to end on a bit of a lighter note. But I think it's really interesting to to get into the nitty gritty about like what are the challenges that you're seeing in terms of applying for funds. Like you've talked about maybe like going to applying for the same grant right now. Like what? How does that feel when you're you're applying for money because you want to fulfill a need for young and inspire young people to continue to chase things that they're passionate about, but yet three people around this table can look at each other and know the same deadline for like one grant of one pocket of money? Well, I'm mad that Thea's not giving me her answers to her granting <laughs> application, but... Uh... It's because I'm embarrassed. <laughs> I'm like, you show me yours, I'll show you mine. <laughs> 
Um, yeah, I mean, I think it's really real. Uh, but, and like, that's part of the uh, anti-role, I think that like both you and I play in, in that sort of thing. It's like being able to like, not have to put the young people that I work with through stuff like this. Um, I think, okay, so like to bring that back to, um, I'm going to, I'm going to try to start somewhere on a timeline. Um, like when four hours first started our, our work, uh, reconciliation was like becoming this really like trendy thing. Um, and so there was actually a lot of, uh, philanthropic organizations that were like, Ooh, we want a part of this. And so they helped to like fund some of our initial like launch and, and development of our work, which was really cool because it also allowed us the flexibility to kind of, um, grow with what we were learning about what it actually is to do cross-cultural dialogue work to like understand and and move through the evolutions of what reconciliation does or doesn't mean for our communities. Um, but then there became a point where we became not so trendy anymore and it was almost like we were forgotten. And so that's when we actually had to move towards more like government funding. Um, and that I think is where a lot of like the challenges around like trying to do your work with integrity while also shaving off pieces of who you are to fit into what you know this government program is wanting to hear from you. Through like the past six years, I've gone from like me being the only staff to having a staff of one or having a staff of two back to being a staff of one to being a staff of three and then back to being a staff of one before I finally got enough funding to actually hire a team of, of four. What I think is important about that story is that every single time I ran out of money, I had to start from the beginning. I had to start from the beginning and like training my staff, building up their capacity, supporting them, getting to know them, building relationships with them, helping to like help them to build relationships with the people that that for ours knows in our networks. Uh, and so it's like every step that you take forward, there's like 30 steps back um, because of the vicariousness of funding and the competitive nature of funding that always privileges non-Indigenous organizations when it comes to a government uh, program. So the funding, for example, that I'm doing right now, um, the application, because I've applied for this fund before and I've never gotten it, like for years we've applied, we've never gotten it, even though reconciliation is like one of the main priorities and we're an Indigenous youth-led reconciliation initiative, but you know, there's other people doing this work better than us, I guess. Um, <laughs> um, I'm just teasing, but uh, uh yeah, but I think that like, you know, like when I first did this application, which was probably about five years ago to now, some of the questions are still the same. Like they haven't even updated or evolved their understanding of the program that they're running to be relevant to young people. And they also ask us, how are you relevant to young people? Um, which is like such uh, uh, a glaring demonstration of hypocrisy, I think. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it's like the values are the priorities that exist um, that are set by government uh, do not match the process. So it's like your priority is reconciliation, but your process and engaging and, and getting resources to community is colonial. It's contradictory, like completely, you know, the, the, the theme of it. And then the questions are like that they're, they're it's like oil and water. How can, how could you dare ask that? <laughs> yeah. It's like strengthening connection to Canada was one of the questions. Uh, and like one of my, my, my staff was like, 
Um, he's like, I don't even know how to answer this question. And I was like, don't worry, I got this. Um, and because I've had experience finding ways to um, talk about our work from a strength-based approach without sort of talking about um, what's problematic about that question. Um, but at this point in like where we are at, I'm like so over that, that I'm actually going to talk about what's problematic about that question. So instead of like trying to like bend and contort, contort ourselves into this, this narrative that they want, um, I think this is what like I see Indigenous young people doing now is like, actually, we're going to like blow the, the like, we're going to blow that kind of shit out of the water. It's exposed time. Could yeah. you imagine like the nerve too? Like, you know, how could you, you see yourself as Canada? You know what I mean? Like as Indigenous youth, you know, is that what like the narrative that, you know, they're trying to get, you know, for the young people, right? And so it's it's really like, uh, like, so, like Thea mentioned, it's contradictory, right? But it's also like, how disconnected are you from the people that, you know, you're trying to fund? Absolutely. Yeah. And I mean, like, uh, I understand. So I think that the conversation about the French language and the relationship between English and French and colonization is really interesting too. But there's always such a focus on uh, Canada's two official languages. How are you going to um, make sure that you prioritize Canada's for two official languages. And so like, our, you know, my answer is something along the lines of when we become fluent in our own language, then we'll start to prioritize Canada's uh, <laughs> yeah. two official languages, right? So it's just stuff like that that's really disheartening. And I can imagine like what it would be like for um, an Indigenous young person who's never been through a process of this, like coming and seeing these questions and actually that causes harm. Um, yeah. That can be triggering and traumatizing for people. And do you find that like non-Indigenous orgs are getting the multi-year funding? Like I just, it sounds so disheartening, like it's discouraging to have to restart over and over and over and have to like restate your vision when why can't we just be supported on like a multi-year level? Yeah, I mean, I think that one of the the challenges with how some funding is structured is that it follows a script um, and folks who are really good at writing within that script are often non-Indigenous organizations who also have the capacity to have an in-house grant writer, for example, like imagine that versus like a volunteer group of like Indigenous youth mm -hmm. um, and have been doing this for like a long time. So the the game is rigged. Um, and, and, and then also the metrics that for evaluation of evaluating the, the quality of, of proposal are completely skewed. So it's like, even if an Indigenous person is sort of talking about their program, you have non-Indigenous people who are evaluating that project and having absolutely no idea whether or not that is a good program or not, but make a decision on it. So they're completely uninformed. They do not have the uh, skills to properly assess that um, and, and then are actually making decisions that have a huge impact on community. Yeah, and so Quinn, like you were talking about some of the feedback that you had received for a project and I was wondering if you want to go into that a little bit. Yeah, feedback, yeah. Well, or just, just in this evaluation process and the way they view the proposed Indigenous pro projects from their lens of like Eurocentric, Western, like they don't, they're like their their perspective that they're bringing when they're looking at these proposals. Yeah, so unreal. So it's like 
quantitative data, you know, show me the numbers. How many young people could you impact? You know, and it's like completely disconnected. Like who says that, you know, maybe uh, we have a more like intimate experience with, you know, a smaller group of young people and and how could you, you know, uh, show the value in, in that work, right? And it's often, it really is some, um, sometimes like generational, you know, it's like part of this like intergenerational healing that's happening. And how do you track that, right? But then these People who are doing evaluations are like, we want to see the numbers now. What happens like right at this moment, the numbers that you're able to to reach. It's like, it's a completely different way of looking at evaluating. And, and as a young person, and you're thinking to yourself as you're writing this project, you're like, well, um, you almost feel like your project and your idea isn't valued or it's not valid and things like that. And then you try to like change it to like better, we need more numbers. And then when you have more numbers often, it's like maybe the relationships amongst the young peoples in your project is, it, it doesn't happen as organically or, you know, it's just, just like, you know, you want to have more intimate experience with, you know, f- uh, for these young people. And then, so it's just, Oh, I, You're like our youth rate the quality of their relationships at about an eight out of ten. Yeah, and here's a number for you: over 150 years of colonization, and we had a community garden going. We have language camps. So if we add that all up, that's probably worth 46 million dollars. <laughs> yeah, I, I can imagine, like, <laughs> especially for a lot of the experiences, like the the public sector and then the private sector, like you know. It, they often tend to think they know what's best. And it just reminds me of like good old Indian act politics. You know what I mean? It's mm. just like, we tend to know we have all the answers and we're going to give you funding for what we feel like needs to be funded, but it can't happen outside of this. And if you do something over here, we won't fund you or we'll cut your funding. It's like the same story, the same narrative. It's just like, at what point do you know we change it, right? So I think a lot of the work that we're doing is we're identifying these barriers and it's like, you know, we're trying to, you know, uh, write our own story. And I think like, you know, us being able to share and have this conversation is us being able to tell our story, right? So, and I, I, someone mentioned something earlier. It's like a lot of these non-Indigenous funders, they know the funders, they know the people, like there's this club. And then sometimes I'm like, I don't feel like I'm invited to the club, you know? <laughs> like, am I missing something here? Like, you know, who are these people, right? And it's just like, they have this, like you said, 150 years, often even more, mm-hmm. however long of experience doing this. And then we're, you know, often very... Um, you know, can be new to these these processes, this sector, this work. And it's just like, we're like almost having to catch up. But then they're like, no, I'm trying to mirror this this whole project. I'm trying to mirror, you know, their processes and mirror the work that they're doing in the sector. And I'm feeling like maybe, and then for one moment, I'm like, in order to feel valid or feel like, you know, what we're doing, our work is important. I have to mirror that system. And then I'm like, hold up. You know, something's wrong here, you know, and then I'm like, you know, they talked about this in school, you know, (laughs) or like, you know, some of the young people are like telling us and we're hearing them like this isn't okay. And it's hard to like put your finger on it right away. Mm -hmm. How do you articulate it? You know, what are the words you just feel like real icky afterwards? Mm -hmm. And so um, it's really, it's really interesting. And I'm, I'm, I'm loving this conversation. It's really good stuff. <laughs> yeah. The and burden, the burden of proof. Yeah. I think that's really what's interesting about that is, is that there's always a burden of proof that's put on Indigenous people from like having to prove that our lands are our lands to even having to prove that our approach to a community is relevant to community or is Indigenous led or is like meeting reconciliation goals. Um, it's a... Uh, yeah, there's a there's a, a pattern and a thread I think in there that's really important to like think about. 
Well, and like, how do they know when we've been successful in reconciliation? Like, because you're the one who's who's saying when so. When Trudeau like, says so. Yeah, <laughs> good old JT. election campaign, reconciliation. Yeah. Yeah. Checkbox, right? And yeah. the quantity thing too is it's the, the it's it is so disheartening because like you you feel so connected to the youth that you're working with, and like sometimes it's not a hundred people. Sometimes it's a it's a much smaller number, and it's like, well, how is that less valuable? than a hundred. Like you're trying to collect bodies. It's like, well, we know Canada has been collecting bodies because we're uncovering them. Say it louder for them in the back. So like those are so frustrating. And something popped into my head too when you were talking was about how not only it it feels like my full-time job is doing this and I don't get to actually do my job. Doing what? Like applying for funds and continuously applying and then reporting, replying and reporting. Like it, it, it's all consuming to convince people that don't know who I am or who we are that we're doing a good job. Isn't that what they called like the nonprofit industrial complex or something like that? Where it's like, you know, we were like, we got all these amazing ideas and all of a sudden all of our efforts like in funding, reporting and all these things, then we get like almost removed from like being able to do in the amazing work and, and envisioning and carrying out, you know, the stuff that we do. It's just... Uh, I I had an experience one time um, sitting there and waiting for this funding, waiting and then, okay, maybe next week and then waiting again. And then I'm like, okay, well, am I going to go, you know, find a job or something or am I going to, you know, or am I going to go to another funder and I'm sitting there waiting, emailing them back. And I'm like, when are they going to get back to me? Do they even have my application? You know, so, and then I feel like this anxiety and I'm sitting there stressing real hard and I'm like, you know, and um yeah, it's, it's not a good feeling, right? So uh, th- there's a few other things that I kind of want to touch on later. But like, you know, at some point, you know, these um, these non-Indigenous, you know, foundations just need to like, why recreate, you know, an, a funding, you know, um, how would you call it? Like a, a certain type of fund uh, for Indigenous youth when, you know, they can just, you know, Pass the check over or something like that. You know what I mean? Why put in all the work um, when, you know, there's that work already being done? Yeah, it's, uh, it just reminds me of like what I've learned from um, just being in the presence of and being mentored by Chris Archie and just how much we center whiteness, even when it's supposed to be about Indigenous people, right? Because when I think about the story that you're telling, Quinn, I also think about actually the folks in power need to learn a bunch of stuff. And so they slow the process down when community's ready because they need to be a part of it and they need to be able to feel like useful hold hands, right? and absolutely and feel good about it because it's it's like um, it it's it's white guilt on an institutional level um, and it shows up in really wild ways um, uh, and to me that's sort of like one of those examples of that right when it's like actually the easiest thing we can do is just write a check to community and here's these five organizations that are doing exactly what you want. Imagine if we could give them $100,000 in admin dollars because that's also something people don't like to to fund. They don't like to help build capacity, right? It's so weird. Like, Why is it so important to put their brand on, on it? Like, why can't they just, they see the relationships that are developing and the trust that people have in like these other Indigenous orgs. And they want that trust, but they're not willing to dismantle 
the structure that is violent and harmful in order to actually make something that would be as then they'd be responsible. Yeah, they wanted like it's like the Kevin Costner effect. Like he always plays the white <laughs> savior. And then when the movie's over, the village gets taken over by settlers. <laughs> it's like they so want to dance with wolves. Yeah. So good. So good. That's that's like I, I think about that with like um, you know, when when we did that tour with decolonizing wealth. And that was one of the things I really kind of thought about about this was if the people who are in charge, like the CEOs, like we can talk with program managers all we want. And they could be super cool and totally get it and understand their whiteness and their and their roles and, and all of these things. But if the, their bosses don't, there's no, there's nothing, nothing's going to happen. That Like there's this, I need to be seen doing this, but they're not going home thinking about, oh man, you know, these communities don't have clean drinking water. They're just going home and drinking the water from their nice big fridge. You know, that one's like the buttons like that spray out. Corporation or something. Yeah, but you know what I mean? Like if you don't actually care about the programs you're doing, like you, we're not going to go very far. We're, we're, you're, you're really not. You're just going to do the very basic. You're going to continue to ask the same questions and it doesn't actually affect your life. Yeah, I think you bring up a really good point that to me is like a, um, a, a bit of an edge or a tension, I think, in... Uh, where we're at with like this work around building infrastructure for indigenous peoples and communities, um, working with uh, within settler philanthropy and building allyship more broadly through like education and stuff like that. Um, on one hand, I see, I sometimes see organizations actually who are just cutting checks and doing that, but also aren't doing the work internally. Um, and so it's almost like a... Um, uh, it's like you can't solve a problem by cutting a check. Give me your money, but you can't solve a problem by cutting a check if you're not contributing to being a part of the solution. Um, and so like that, what you're talking about with leadership is like a big, huge barrier that like keeps us stuck in a place where we're doing feel-good projects, but we're not actually making any progress systematically in in addressing like all of the racism and, and oppression that is like, um, you know, rampant in our communities. Yeah, you know what? That, you know, brings up something else too. I remember, oh wow, there's lots. Yeah, and you know what? There, there's some really cool people out there, um, you know, non-Indigenous folks and stuff like that. And, you know, but the leadership is like really white. You know what I mean? And it's like, I, each, each time there's a, new org, there's a new person that comes in, it's like the same thing how you said you have to train your, you know, your staff when you, you know, have to come do funding again. And you get a new turnover in the board and it's like, whoa, what happened? You know, bring the other person back. You know, why, <laughs> why you got to be like that? You know, so I, I'm like, oh, here we go again. You know, it's just like, oh, geez. And I know sometimes I'm like, man, do I, like, I feel like I have to like talk all fancy in front of these folks because, you know, maybe they'll be judging me, you know? And sometimes I... And they I, probably are. Yeah, I did. You know what? They probably, yeah, holy. Yeah, definitely. So, and I feel like that sometimes. It's like, you know, whose expectations am I trying to live up to? You know what I mean? And I, you know, as, and I can imagine as an Indigenous young person who's writing this, um, you know, a grant for a project and, you know, and, um you know, having to, you know, see some of this stuff and some of this, the vocabulary that's used and, you know, some of, you know, the processes, it's like, it's like, who I don't even know if I, if I feel like I'm valid. I don't feel, you know, do I feel like I, I can contribute there or do I feel like, 
you know, I have something to say, you know, and the, you question yourself and then you, you feel a little bit of shame and, you know, you, it's you, no Indigenous young person should ever question whether or not they're mm-hmm. valid, you know. And I like think, the assimilation never stops. No. Like they always move that, well, if you want this money, well, you got to write this way and you got to talk this way and you have to dress this way and you have to sit this way, you know, and it's, and then to get that money, you have to like walk walk the talk and do the dance and all this stuff. And at the end, you still might get screwed over it, no matter how much of yourself and who you are, where you come from, you sacrifice in order to try to get that, those funds. Have you ever like written a grant and you're like, and you had to write something and I'm like, oh, you know, and then felt real weird afterwards. (laughs) You're like, oh, ew, you know. (laughs) Oh yeah. I've gotten real good at that though. And, and to a point where it's like with my team, I'm like, they're like, oh, do we really have to do that? I'm like, nah, they don't even know what that means. I'm like, I'm just putting in words that they'll be like, "Mm mm-hmm, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then we just go and do whatever we want and then I'll translate it in the report. Um, But again, like they were saying, like that's labor, that's extra labor that we're doing instead of just being able to like actually do the work or then sort of like repackaging it and repackaging it in a way that is um, digestible for for um, uh, like mainly like white philanthropists or, or, or government agencies. Well, I think the other thing that's tied to that too, that this is a worry that comes up for me a lot now is, um, you know, being taken advantage of in terms of my experience and sharing that with you know, our supporters and our funders and, um, you know, the, the, the almost duplication of the work that we're doing. And that's a real problem. We, we had our, our gathering um, a couple of weeks ago on a Sunday and we hosted a, a conversation uh, about protecting yourself and the amount of stories that came out of these young people and myself included was, it was breathtaking in a bad way, you know, like it was, so much exploitation, so much like so much consent like yeah. And I'm a kind of person as a, just like me as a human. I and I shouldn't do this, but I innately think that no one's trying to do that. That's not my first place that I jump to in my thinking. And now I have to think about whether or not they're trying to take advantage of me or what are, what are they actually trying to extract. And that is really painful because it hurts my heart because that's not how I actually feel or think or act in this world. But I, I have to be protective now of the years of work that we've put into this organization to keep it alive because there is an expectation that, we, that we're still going to be around. But not when there's a, 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 a replication of our work because I want to share it with everyone, but then am I oversharing? <laughs> and then are they then taking that and no longer allowing us to have opportunities to grow or be in that space. I don't know if that came out very well. Oh, no, absolutely. I I think that there's like so many, um, uh, history repeats itself. We know that, right? Um, And it looks very different um, and, and can be really confusing when you're experiencing like, that cycle or that pattern over and over again. And, and these kinds of stories to me just speak to how deeply ingrained capitalism is as a value in Canadian society, because the, the way that that expresses itself is always through um, this like ownership. This is mine. I want to own this. And the extraction mentality that that goes along with that taking people's knowledge, the lack of reciprocity, the lack of relationship, everything is transactional. 
Um, and, and that's such a big barrier, I think, for Indigenous people to overcome because of the like completely um, uh, incompatible value systems that we have and how we approach things. Um, but the way that I see that showing up in like, uh, you know, what we can also call the reconciliation industry is that Indigenous peoples and in all their generosity will, will educate, will build new systems, build new processes with non-Indigenous organizations or philanthropic organizations, only for them to then turn around and repackage that as theirs, and then to position themselves within the sector, position themselves to other funders or other organizations as being good allies. But meanwhile, they're actually just pushing out Indigenous-led initiatives and organizations from even having a chance. Um, and so we see, uh, once again, we're just kind of back into another era where we're not actually creating infrastructure for Indigenous peoples and communities. We're, we're now helping to support non-Indigenous organizations to build that infrastructure. And so then, and they can also pay Indigenous people more because they have long-term funding and we don't. Uh, and so they actually like extract all of our, our, our like young people or all of our like skilled like folks who are like doing work in the sector. Cause, and I can't blame them, right? It's like, uh, I think I've had four staff now take jobs at philanthropic organizations. And I'm grateful because I feel like we send them off as like infiltrators and disruptors mm -hmm. into those mm -hmm. spaces. But at the same time, it's like I could never pay them what those folks are paying them. I could never give them the certainty of a long-term job or the kinds of benefits that they're able to do. Um, and uh, that's just like the experience of like four hours. And I know that that exists all over the place for folks who are trying to do work that's like led by our communities for our communities. Yeah, it's fucked. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, whoa, you know, like. She's like. Yeah, yeah just like, you know, it drops it down. But in the, like the way you were able to say that too. And it reminds me like when we're out there wanting to be able to build and develop our capacity, it's like we're begging for money. And you know what it feels like? It feels like I'm at like the Indian agent's door begging for rations, you know what I mean? And that's what it feels like, you know? And then some people get more, some people get less or whatever it is. And then we, you know, tend to, you know, we, we tend to bump heads with each other or fight each other. And it's like divide and conquer. And then you're watching it play out in different sectors. And it's just like, whoa, you know, and you see it and you see it. And you, maybe you're not be able to identify it at first. And then afterwards, you're like, that always felt a little weird. And, you know, I just, I hate the idea is that we're always like having to like, beg for money and, and, and justify ourselves and, and, and explain like, this is why we need the money. And, you know, we should be able to pay our, our, you know, employees, indigenous employees, you know, what they should be, you know, what they're valued, what they're worth. Right. And that's not always the case is they often have to take, you know, a lower wage, right. Like, because they really believe in the work. Like, I don't know what your experience is. I've had to pay myself. I, I'm a university graduate. I, paid nothing what do I get paid you know like I, I and I do it because this is what I believe in you know and because I'm, I'm passionate about it but you know do, should I be the ones having to take this huge wage cut or this you know pay cut in order to carry out the work and then when you shared that story of you know some of your employees leaving to you know this you know massive machine well-oiled machine it's just like man that's not right you know so it feels like if you're doing grassroots work you're almost expected to be poor. But it doesn't need to be that way, right? But like, you know, when you work in the charitable sector, there's this expectation that you don't get paid well. 
that you can't because if you're working in a charity, well, all the money is supposed to go to that charity, right? So how dare you make a good wage or anything? like? And it feels that way too with like these small orgs, like OIP is tiny. You know, nobody knows that we're a one and a half person team. Like no one knows that we're a one and a half person team. We're led by our youth advisors who tell me what to do and I do what they told me. <laughs> and then I have a part-time coordinator, but it's like, you know, I'm I'm doing my best to try to like continuously make sure that I maintain and retain my person so that they're actually wanting to stay and they're not starving and they can pay their rent. Yeah. And what's like messed up about that? I mean, like right now I'm in a position where like I'm trying to find funding for the next like, you know, fiscal year. Um, and what the reality of that is and the conversations that I have to have with my staff team are you might not have a job after March. I was burning out every single year um, because I was like one person leading a national initiative on reconciliation during a time where like everybody was really obsessed with reconciliation Um, to like also again at this point almost being like, okay, I might not have any staff after March and it's going to be back to me again Um, and then starting all over. So it's like the momentum that gets created, the creativity, the ideas, the programs, they just, they die with the end of the fiscal year. Well, and at the same time too, I don't know if you feel this way, but I feel like if I, you know, at some point I would like to pass the torch and, and, you know, move on and do something different and, and then allow a new fresh perspective to come in. And it's like, there's never that opportunity because you're constantly still trying to keep it alive because you care about it so much. And so you're sacrificing yourself in that process. And then you're like, <laughs> that you're, and you, like you said, you start over and over and over again because there's no foundation and we don't have anything that's reliable and know that like, you know, we're going to be able to pay our rent next year. Yeah. And I'm like, I do not want to subject any Indigenous youth to the shit show that I have to deal with on a regular basis. Like that's also part of it. And and that's a bit paternalistic, but it's also like literally part of why I'm like, I'm just going to hold this door open as long as I can um, and really try to like... like Game of Thrones style. <laughs> hold the door. <laughs> I don't get it. Oh, don't watch it. This last season was not swell. <laughs> But um, I guess like as we start to like wrap up and, you know, we've said a lot today and I, everyone is very honest and it, um, this was a very interesting one to sort of sit in on and hear some of your, a lot of your critiques of the sector. Like what are some of maybe your closing thoughts on like if the sector could listen to like one thing, <laughs> like if you're like, you just give us like, give me this one thing. We'll start there. Like as one, what would be the first thing that would be like the most helpful immediate change. Closing. I thought we were just getting started. <laughs> it's been like 45, no 50 way. minutes. Okay, so. I'm not going first, but yeah. Wow, holy. I'm not going first. <laughs> <laughs> starts going first and doesn't go first. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we've heard a lot about um, instability. Of, of um, Instability, long longevity sounds like an issue for programming. Um, underpaying, so expectations for staff or people who are actually doing this work? Um, I have a couple things. Can it be more than one? Heck yeah. Okay. My first thing is, is that if you are offering funding programming for reconciliation, um, that it goes to Indigenous people only. 
my second thing is. Sorry, I'm like, that's like, it sounds like radical. But to me, it's almost like, should that not have been like the obvious starting place? (laughs) It seems pretty obvious. (laughs) You would think, but it's not the case, right? Um, but like truly it's like, if, if, you know, there's, you have a funding priority that is around reconciliation that indigenous organizations and communities should be privileged in, in that application process. And it, it doesn't happen that way. My second thing is 10 year contribution agreements. Imagine if we had 10 years to like work on, um, a critical issue in our community Um, you know, like whether that be food sovereignty or like health and wellness or like really supporting young people with, um, uh, you know, like the, the work that they want to do to build the futures of their communities, like 10 years, imagine what we could do with 10 years. So that's my third one, um, or my second one. And my third one is, um, to, uh, actually without any strings attached, fund the salaries of, uh, land protectors and water protectors. I mean, we're, we're within a climate of like legit destruction. Um, I've seen- Code red for humanity. (laughs) Code red for humanity. Right. And, and actually what we're doing is criminalizing the people, uh, some of the people who are actually doing some of the most critical work around climate change right now. So instead of criminalizing them, let's pay their salaries. So that they actually can can create well-being for their families and their communities because oftentimes they're mothers. Oftentimes they're like young people or young mothers. So, you know, let's let's uh, let's support them. And while we're out there saving the world, that will also benefit you. <laughs> like why? it's not just like indigenous communities that will perish <laughs> under the wrath of climate change. Like we all will feel the wrath. Maybe frame it like that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this is for Give you too, you know. <laughs> yeah. Any thoughts? But I, those are really, those are really pivotal. And I'm, it's interesting to hear how, whether it's like academia, like whereas I'm kind of housed or the philanthropic sector, it still comes back to like activism, like on the ground, people who are doing like some of the most important work while we're in these like institutions trying to jump these dumb hoops, trying to be like, Support those on the ground who are actually doing work that will save our lives. <laughs> yeah, like Nimki. I mean, like, man, can someone just donate to the salary of Quinn and Taryn, please? I'm just going to throw that out to the airwaves. Any about big 80K. guns listening Is to that this? Good? Yeah, Jimmy <laughs> yeah, Gretch. I won't even say what I, you know, am paid, you know, for the year. So <laughs> it's, uh, you know, let's just say I, I eat every month. So we'll say that. <laughs> well, say I think month, this would be a good, <laughs> a good opportunity to, like, actually, you know, if there is an asset you have, like here is your opportunity to put that out there because this is what it's here for. So if there's something that you want to put out, like not to put you under pressure or anything, but you know, if you have something that you need, why don't you just say it and see yeah. if maybe somebody's going to listen to this and come forward. Jeff Bezos. Yeah. If you're out there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I think about like land back initiatives and stuff. You mentioned it too, you know, they're criminalized and stuff like that, you know? So um, and you know, for us, like, you know, we are totally off grid and you know what? So we had this funder and uh, they were wanting to, uh, we wanted a well. And so uh, really cool. They were like, we'll take care of the administrative end of the funder, right? Of the funding and stuff like that. So we don't have to, you know, deal through the money, what happens. And that was a question. 
what happens if all this money that I get is flowing through an account with my name on it? And what happens for tax purposes? And I was like, oh my God. And so if young people create this, you know, let's say uh, non-incorporated, not profit, you know, something so that they can, you know, have their monies. And so it's not attached to their personal name. What happens for tax purposes? And so these are some of the things that, you know, I'm often concerned about, you know. So if something comes through, someone gives gives us money and I'm like, thank you for the money. Now we can do some projects. And I'm like, well, what's going to happen for taxes now? Like, you know, and I am a little like, um, <laughs> yeah, I better talk to somebody about that, right? <laughs> you know, at some point, you know, or, you know, before I get served, right? So, you know, these are the things that are like very real concerns. And so, um, you know, and that's something, you know, I think we, we definitely have to look at is like, how can we ensure, you know, we protect, you know, the financial security of these young people who are doing these granting, especially as it relates to taxes. You know, I don't know how much people know, like on reserve versus off reserve and, you know, things like that. I, I think that's an important conversation that we really need to have because um, I know some people who are deterred away from things because they're like, oh, you have to go through charitable homes and things like that. And um, it's just all these hoops that you got to jump through. Um, yeah. There was a really 40 minutes. I just, I felt like we just started talking about these things. My fourth thing is um, <laughs> non-qualified donees yeah. to lobby the government to um, change the CRA rules around non-qualified donees so that individual community organizations are protected. Hopefully you guys talked about that I in another episode. That's we're going to an do episode, another yeah. episode that it's literally about all of these things. We've got it kind of like written out. And if you want to be part of that and, and speak to some of that, let me know. But um is, you know, I'm hoping that at some point some of these episodes will be also just not just very educational from like a very basic point. Because I don't even understand sometimes how you could get dinged in some ways around some of this because are the charitable sector is so heavily regulated. It's really hard to figure out whether you're doing something wrong or not. Yeah, I'll give you a great example. I know that this is like, you guys can cut this out, but I just want to share this as like an example. So, um young Indigenous mother on mat leave um, is asked to do a presentation for an organization. Um, she can't take the honorarium because if she takes the honorarium, then she gets dinged for her mat, her maternity benefits. So instead of being able to bring more abundance into her little family, she can't accept that money or she has to figure out ways to like bypass that so that it doesn't impact the benefits that she gets just for an example now i'm sad and then you have organizations <laughs> who won't do things like provide visa gift cards or provide gift cards or things because they're like worried about cra i'm like these are the kinds of places where we actually need folks to like find creative allyship in like the finance end of things we can only do so much as to like give advice of alternatives then you just got to stand there and provide barriers right back like any closing thoughts, Thea? I appreciate you both coming and having this conversation and being honest. And, you know, I'm hoping that we'll have more of this in the future, you know, because things are going to constantly change and we're going to con continuously come across a lot more um, stories that we want to tell. And I want to make sure that this this platform that we're creating is something you have access to um, and have a place where you can share some of those things and provide, you know, you're not going to some Joe Schmo's uh, podcast. <laughs> um, 
all it to say is just that, you know, there's a lot more things to come. And I hope that, you know, uh, our last episode, I mentioned that if there are questions, you know, we talked about a lot of different things. And if there's things that are sparking for our listeners out there um, to to reach out and, and ask those questions. And what we're going to do is try to answer those in our next ones, uh, our next um, episodes as we move along in this. And also, if you're, there's topics that you want to hear about um, or you want to hear more about Jess or you want to hear more about Quinn and their work, you know, there's opportunities for us to create those spaces and, uh, and offer up our platform. Um, but, uh, I just want to say it was a really fun conversation to have, and I really appreciate everyone. Um, and, uh, yeah, thank you all, Miigwech. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Feel free to reach out too. Like, I'm sure like, you know, that we are like almost just scratching the surface with this conversation <laughs> and then as further episodes go on, like, you know, a lot of the stuff will, will surface, right? Uh, but there's definitely like small parts of the conversation that we had. We can definitely just dive a lot deeper and kind of critique it or, you know, maybe brain, brainstorm on, you know, you know, potential solutions. And, you know, I find we often have the solutions. It's just, you know, there's just this wall often that we get up to. And, you know, we might have somebody, a real awesome ally who's doing really great work. And then they're met with that wall as well. And, you know, sometimes I feel like I'm being led on and we're like, yeah, this funding is looking really good for you. And then they just kind of like, um, I don't know, it's like you're in a race and then they just stick out their foot and then they trip you. And, you know, and then and, they cross the finish line. Yeah, and yeah. And, yeah. Ghost you. And it's becoming tradition on the show to do a group miigwech at the end. <laughs> so thank you. Thank you all. Thank you both. I'm sure you'll be back. Um, this was incredible. And miigwech. Thank you. See you all next time.